You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And as a college teacher during every presidential campaign since 1948, when give hell Democrat Harry Truman beat the betting odds, fooled the pollsters, and made mockery of the Chicago Tribune's infamous headline, wrongly proclaiming Republican candidate Tom Dewey's election as president, I've taken particular note of younger Americans' attitudes towards our quadrennial presidential sweepstakes. Remember that until they were 21, younger Americans couldn't actually vote at that time, not until the 26th Amendment to the Constitution, nearly a quarter century later, could 18 to 21-year-olds vote. While now the role they play in actually choosing our presidents can be of major transformative importance. Surely it was four years ago when Barack Obama mobilized younger voters with a vengeance and quite decisively won their support at the ballot box. 53% of all voters chose the Democratic presidential candidate in 2008, while voters under age 30 gave him 66% of their vote. This year, then, it's obvious that what we learn about younger voters' leanings in the presidential campaign will be crucially significant. And for this reason, we'll look at them today, again when the party candidates have been chosen, and perhaps once more after Americans' 2012 presidential ballots have been counted. To help me do so, I'll turn now to one of those younger voters, who as a Harvard history student and freelance journalist has over the past four years researched and written scads of commentaries on the subject. A founder and the editor of the national student outlet Scoop 08, Alexander Hefner also closely covered the last presidential campaign. The niceties of full disclosure would have me add that Alexander is my grandson and worked with me in producing the eighth revised and expanded edition of a documentary history of the United States. So, welcome, Alexander. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I'm, I'm glad to be able to pump you for uh, your feelings, your attitudes, and your knowledge as a researcher of what young people are thinking and doing in this presidential campaign. First, I suppose a statistic I should mention is one that comes in terms of uh, the fallout between 2008 and 2010. Young voter turnout fell 60% from 2008 to 2010. Democrats won't win in 2012 if the trend continues. That's what that press headline says. Do you think it's true? I think that's true, but at the same time, in midterm elections in the past, young people have not come out. They tend to only come out for the presidential contest when they see candidates for commander-in-chief. So that has been true of multiple congressional elections over time. In 2008, you saw an uptick for the presidential race. Not since 1992 had you seen 
such an outpouring of young people involved in the campaign and that ultimately translating into an electoral output that put President Obama over the edge. So I would not look exclusively at the midterm results to dictate the you know, how you feel or how we should report on young people in 2012. Yeah, but uh, the other day or the other week, uh, uh, I couldn't help but note, I wanted to note that in the online uh, op-ed New York Times, you uh, and a number of your age group said uh, some rather negative things about Obama that would lead me to think you're not going to come out and vote. What do you think about that? Well, that's true. There has been disappointment, uh, even dejection. There's been disengagement as a result of missed opportunities. I think the president had the opportunity, for instance, during the college debt crisis, not just the economic crisis, but during the college debt crisis of 2009 and 2010, all the way through to presently, he had an opportunity to go to state schools and campuses and, and campaign on behalf of young people, lobby for their cause. And then and now, the issue of debt and amassing large amounts of it is a pressing one for, for young people. The most jarring um, MIA missing in action Obama for young people, I think, was his absence on uh, the campaign trail in 2010 in which he didn't go to college campuses to advocate specifically on behalf of young people uh, and attack administrators for yet again raising tuition um, costs. And as long as young people have this substantial degree of red ink, they're not going to be motivated to vote. That was the most pressing issue. In the New York Times forum that you alluded to, there are other sources of dissatisfaction with President Obama, but the fiscal one, the idea that young people are still getting a raw deal in terms of the economy, that's the most looming one. You mean I've got to believe that young people who I want to think of as idealists, we really were responding to the economic situation. In 2008? And, and it, now? now, now, in what you and your colleagues were saying in the Times the other day. Well, I think that's part of it. Po- pocketbook issues are of particular consequence when it's a matter of make or break. If you're a college student or if you're a graduate student and you're looking for a career in a particular discipline, that is a very decisive issue. You know, I think young people have been concerned for some time that after the health care passage legislation, which was a landmark achievement in which more young people are covered now. But since then, they have felt that Obama has not adequately had that punch on defending his policies or a more progressive agenda than President Clinton, for instance. So there is a laundry list of complaints that extend beyond the uh, pocketbook issue of the economy. But that's the most important for now, I think. Look, you covered the White House for Scoop 44. Scoop 08 became Scoop 44 when the 44th president went into the White House. You know more about it than I do. How do you explain his failure knowing the role that young people played in 2008? And he had to know it. Why didn't the White House follow up? Well, from reporting in D.C. and continuing to correspond with Obama press aficionados and people who represent the president, I can say that 
President Obama and his team will say that they continue to mobilize young voters on campuses with email alerts, text messages to inform them of progress, championing causes like health care. So there, there continues to be ongoing communication between the president and young people, but it's not direct, it's not explicit. Uh, I think a lot of people would like to see President Obama in this campaign cycle envision a cost-free college education. Uh, so many secondary schools and private universities, particularly ones with huge endowments, are able to offer admission free of charge to so many young people who are well-qualified. Uh, that's, that's something big, bold, beautiful to young people. Um, particularly if you're disenfranchised, uh, particularly if you're at a socioeconomic disadvantage. Um, There is a a sense of uh, dejection in certain circles, but the president has an opportunity to once again cater to this millennial demographic. Um, Some of that energy we might discuss is being channeled through Ron Paul's candidacy, uh, the Texas Republican who advocates America first. Uh, Let's pull out of our international commitments overseas and free the government and free the American people of regulation. And that message is resonating um, because there is a sense that in the past eight years of the Bush administration uh, and now in the Obama administration, there is still more emphasis and more of a priority on international measures than on domestic ones. Now... You make the point about Ron Paul's young followers. Is that, again, a... uh, And hell's bells, I'm sounding uh, very um, holier than thou in saying this, and I, I don't really mean to, but I ask you about the issues, and you bring up the matter of cost of going to college. You continue by talking about um, young people' involvements in an isolationist um, uh, campaign on the Ron Paul side. That's where they're being stuck. That's where they're being hurt. Is that what we're talking about? Catering, again, a poor word, taking note of the immediate personal interests of a part of the electorate. Young people are concerned about indebtedness thanks to the costs of college. Young people are concerned about the fact that they're the ones who go to war. They're the ones who lay down their lives. Is that what we're talking about? Right, and they assume the brunt of financial hardship in particular um, when they're jobless or out of school or could not enroll in school or could not pay for school. But let me make a broader point here. The support for Ron Paul and his very dedicated loyalists in their 20s represents something else in the political process, a desire for a third-party movement, a desire for a new Ross Perot, a reform-oriented ethos in which there is just this dissatisfaction, and I'll use that word again, with the politics-as-usual atmosphere in Washington, D.C., with a campaign that stretches over a year, and some say would some would argue the day after inauguration, uh, the Republicans uh, camped out and decided Mitt Romney is going to be our our choice. There's been some debate about that, but at this point it looks like the former governor will be the Republican nominee. But the point here is that if young people can channel their energy and fuel an insurgent candidacy, that's a positive thing for our democracy. Whether it's Ron Paul 
or someone who might be more in the center. If it's a unity effort with a person like John Huntsman, who just bowed out of the campaign, the former governor of Utah, and perhaps a Democrat who is more moderate or an independent, like Mayor Mike Bloomberg here in New York City, young people are craving um, a uh, break from partisan politics. And unfortunately, uh, the Congress and President Obama, too, were not able to collaborate in the last three years. I mean, we've gone through debt crisis and impasse after debt crisis and impasse, and the result has been, wow, is this our, is this our political system? And, and the campaign's length, I mean, it requires so much endurance for the candidates and for the, for the people and for young people who have a very notoriously short attention span. So, you know, there's a larger issue here. It's not just about um, bread and butter issues for young people. It's about their empowerment in a political system that is frankly inoperable. It's so bad. You know, you mentioned John Huntsman, and um, we know we're taping this program uh, middle of January, and we know he's dropped out of the Republican race. But I'm uh, interested, as I note, a long time ago you brought Huntsman into it. In the first place, you used to tell me that you thought he was a very viable uh, candidate uh, for, the, um, for the Republicans. But I'm thinking now back as long ago as six months ago, July 13th, when you wrote a, um, a uh, piece for the Tampa Bay Times and you wanted us to imagine if Obama assembled the team of Hillary Clinton for vice president, John Huntsman for secretary of state, and you were going to take poor old Joe Biden and let him retire uh, in honor of Huntsman and uh, Clinton. You think that has any, um, if not urgency, any meaning today? Others have picked up the idea of certainly adding Hillary Clinton. Well, I think it would have been a worthwhile call from President Obama if he saw that Huntsman had resigned, which he did, and was possibly gearing up for an exploratory committee. We don't know if he made that call, but it would have been worth his time to call the former ambassador and governor and say, well, let's, let's make this happen. Because young people, of the bipartisan notion? Right, right. And young people, I think, would have responded enthusiastically to that, prop, to, to that proposition of a bipartisan ticket or cabinet, in this case, with Huntsman as Secretary of State. Do you have any sense that among young people now, in, in the researches that you've been doing, have you seen it popping up, the notion of uh, a Democratic-Republican ticket? The, the notion of that has emerged through Unity 08 efforts. There was a campaign that failed in 2008 to nominate a bipartisan ticket. Uh, now ha they have some corporate backing, and if you read uh, in the New York Times recently, um, there, there is an effort to enlist a Democrat and Republican or two independents to run, and there will be a virtual primary online. Um, and they are trying to get this proposal sanctioned by the uh, folks in state by state where they have to register for the general election. So the primary, in effect, takes place online. And this segues into an important point for young people. Y young people thrive on the web. We operated uh, three websites on the web, Scoop 08, Scoop 44, Scoop Daily. Um, and one friend who's a fellow journalist and I are planning a Scoop 2012 to cover this campaign. Um, 
young people would respond well to the, the idea that they could make their selection online. Um, and the whole possibility in the future and the promise of e-balloting in which you register online. I mean, right now you can register online, but the idea that you could vote online and the security apparatus would be implemented adequately so that it couldn't be hijacked. I mean, we know that there have been accusations of uh, ballot boxes being hijacked in effect at polling stations. I mean, I think you would see the number of caucus goers or primary goers triple quadruple, expand infinitely if it, if it all happened online. I mean, it's a scary proposition for you, perhaps. People are not going to... For us old people, you mean. <laughs> for, for people who are accustomed to going to the ballot box and pulling a lever, and that's the way it should be done. Um, but, you know, communication should be done via letter, but it's done via email today. Well, listen, let's... And, and the numbers in this primary cycle were particularly disappointing for Republicans. Young people came out in Iowa among their share in 3%. Uh, in, in 2008, with the Obama-Clinton rivalry and that campaign in full force, that was essentially uh, quadrupled, 12%. Um, you had four times the amount of energy uh, in the Democratic primary um, in, in this case, it was a caucus in Iowa. But in, in the primary contest so far, young people have not come out. You know, I, I, we tape a lot of shows on one day, and I don't know whether you heard uh, Ms. Hesselbein, uh, who is an expert on leadership, whose institute uh, now and all through her life has focused on leadership, you may have heard her say that she has great faith and confidence in this generation, really your generation, that it will pick up where the best generation, so-called, uh, my generation, the war, the Second World War generation, left off. Do you think there's anything different about people in your age group and uh, other young groups of people, other groups of young people in the past? I think that your, the answer to your question is unknown so far. I think that young people have not proven themselves in the way that the greatest generation did or the great generation, I mean, depending on how far you go back. Um, but that's a difficult question to answer at this juncture. I think Obama represented a transformational presidency in which young people would be incorporated into the governing process, and that has not really happened, uh, or at least to the extent that it's apparent enough to say this is a generation that takes political power seriously and is truly invested in its democracy. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's not that I'm not enthusiastic or upbeat about this generation. I think um, the potential is vast and the promise is there, but this is an opportunity in this election cycle to democratically assert yourself. And as of yet, that hasn't been established. We should note that President Obama has probably the most young aides out of any president in recent history, including his chief speechwriter, not just someone who came along and is aiding a deputy. Uh, this is someone who he identified during the campaign as a true wordsmith and someone who would represent his vision. And he's still the acting chief speechwriter, and he's in his 20s. Okay, you're talking about words, and if I remember correctly, 
in this uh, New York Times group of comments by young people, the headline is, right above your name, Obama is all words, no action. How come, seriously, in your estimation, with that cadre of young people in the White House, why hasn't the president acted differently? His words make me cry. His actions, you know, right. you well, answer. Well, that's, that's true. And he was enigmatic during the campaign. I mean, he, he appealed to a lot of different forces within the electorate. I mean, we, a lot of people say now, and it's true, we saw him and made of his political prowess what we wanted and his message what we wanted. And, and so young people have been disappointed, both on the left and on the right of the political spectrum, depending upon what they viewed as his potential or what policies he would institute. But we have to remember, um, this is not an FDR in, in, in personality-wise uh, in terms of the kind of action that comes alongside the forceful rhetoric. Well, um, it's interesting. Francis Hesselbein is saying that the... Um, nature of real leadership is not to be quite as aggressive as I think your age group and even old fogies like me wanted him to be, but to compromise, to compromise, to walk in the other guy's shoes. Now, that's what we're criticizing the president for doing overly much. Well, I was about to say that also in that political climate in which President Roosevelt was able to institute so many reforms of his alphabet program, the New Deal, he had a Congress that was democratic, I mean, for the most part. And it's not, we, we shouldn't suggest necessarily all of the product should come out of Congress in terms of that action. A lot of it ultimately does because they have the authority to legislate and make new laws, new laws. But in, in, I think there's, there's a disconnect as a result of a hyper-toxic partisan atmosphere. And that's why we come back to the idea of a third-party candidate. I think if in 2012 there is a third-party candidate, uh, even if it's someone who is out of the mainstream like Ron Paul, if he is on the stage with President Obama and Governor Romney, that will be a healthy thing for our democracy. Fascinating to think of. Uh, really fascinating to think of. Uh, in, in all words, yeah, right, all words, and, and just as an extension of President Obama's efforts this cycle. You're right, in, in 2008, there was such... Um, upset over the Bush administration and his conduct abroad and at home um, and the Bush administration to young people resembled the ultimate 1%, right? If we talk about the 99% and the Occupy element of the political discourse today. But he could simply arrive on college campuses and generate huge audiences. And this cycle is going to be more challenging for him. He will have to strategize both about the message and the substance of the policy he's putting forth. It's not going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be much more difficult, especially if you have rowdy college kids on these campuses. And, and it's already happened to a Republican candidate, Rick Santorum. It will happen to President Obama, in which they interrogate you, literally. So it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how he responds to young people who are concerned and, in many cases, loud about it. Which leads me to ask you a question about something quite different. You're talking about the president on the campuses. You're talking about the candidates coming to the uh, campuses. You're talking about the possibility of a third party. 
uh, I go back to the fact that you reveal yourself in a number of places and you wrote for the New York Daily News uh, an opinion piece and you called it a tale of two Harvards. Romney and Obama offer two contrasting visions of an elite education. And you Harvard guys, I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Franklin D. Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and the two people who seem they're about to be the candidates this year, and maybe a third. Uh, what did you mean about contrasting visions of an elite education? Well, I think that to connect with young people, you'll have to be a true populist in this cycle um, because every financial piece of news that we see um, is, is about a bank or a major corporation. And I wrote this piece because the two candidates, the likely candidates on the Republican Democratic side, they embody elitism purely as being products of Harvard. And they have the opportunity to extend a helping hand or to be the 1% in effect in the way they govern, in the way they view the nation, envision um, young people's role. And, I mean, I, I should say, overall, um, there are two visions. One is, is President Obama, who's trying now, since his Kansas speech, to embody that populace. And Mitt Romney is probably not going to be able to escape the 1%. Uh, the fact that he was at Bain Capital and made millions of dollars off firing people, in essence, what he would argue was reconsolidating companies. But that's not what young people are going to want to hear. They're going to want to see someone on the campaign trail who feels their pain um, and is willing to be a little bit more specific policy-wise on how they're going to fix or help young people fix their economic quandary. Feel their pain. That may be the key to your third-party candidate, presumed. Alexander Hefner, thank you for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure, and I'll try to get you back here when we know who those candidates are, maybe your third one among them. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, I'll say it a different way, as another old friend used to say, Good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind.